We want to look at the 12th verse as a beginning point. I want to talk to you about a, a, a subject that's, um, well, in, in theological circles, it's a very controversial subject. It's, uh, it's handled a little bit differently in theological circles than it is in, in, uh, among the, the laymen among the church at large. But uh, as we go, you'll, you'll see what we're talking about, and I'll explain a little bit further. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Paul speaking by the Holy Ghost, he said, Wherefore, as by one man, now the one man he's talking about is Adam. He clearly identifies that, and you'll see it as we read. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all, notice it says have sinned in the King James. The word have is not there, for that all sin. Literally saying when Adam sinned, everybody sinned. It's not saying everybody is guilty of sin, even though that's true. Here where Paul is talking about, he's saying when Adam sinned because he was the federal head of mankind. He was the one that God created. And all of mankind, male and female, was in him, in his seed, literally, would be descendants of Adam, the first man. When he sinned, he sinned for everybody. When he sinned, his seed, unborn, was guilty of the same sin that he committed. In other words, he cursed his whole family, which is all of mankind, everybody on the earth. Now, notice it says that there were two things, two elements. It says sin was Adam's um, transgression. Sin was the, the thing that he did. He disobeyed God when God told him not to eat of the fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam disobeyed that. That disobedience was sin, and sin opened the door to death. In other words, sin was the entryway for death. Now, the death he's talking about is not physical death although that has a, a bearing on this. But the death he's talking about is spiritual death. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the first thing it says is their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and ashamed. They saw they were naked and they were ashamed. Well, they were naked before their eyes were opened. So nakedness is not the problem. God made them naked. So nakedness isn't the problem. What was the problem? The problem was they became conscious of their own lack. Now, I personally believe, and this is just speculation, but I personally believe that even as the Bible says in Numbers chapter 33, where, God said, where Moses said, show me your glory, when he was up in the mountain, you know, getting the second table of the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments and so forth. It says that after God showed his glory and revealed his glory to him, he had been up there for 40 days. He came down from the mountaintop and his face was aglow. His face shined and everybody was afraid of him. Well, sinners are afraid of the glory of God. There's no two ways about that. And so the sinful man at the bottom of the hill was afraid of the man that had spent his last 40 days in the presence of God. Moses wasn't righteous, but even as a sinful man, the effect that the presence of God had on Moses after being in, uh, in the, seeing God face to face for 40 days had an effect on his body. Well, how much more true would that be with Adam and Eve who knew no sin and had the life of God from the inside of them? Do you see the point I'm trying to make? Now, I can't prove it, but you can't disprove it either. So, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinion about this. But I believe that Adam and Eve glowed. The, glory, the light of the glory of God shined in and through them because there was no sin. There was no, uh, there was no carnality to their flesh. Their flesh was in perfect condition. They would have been in the same position as Jesus was when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. When he was on the mountain and he began to glow, well, what was it that glowed? Jesus didn't change. God didn't give him more of himself. Jesus and the glory of God that was on the inside of him in his, from his spirit just shined through and showed through his flesh. Now, it was just temporary. 
He didn't stay that way when he came back down from the mountain. But if it can have a temporary effect on you, if the glory of God can have a temporary effect on you like that, then what do you think the glory of God would do to man's flesh when he is without sin completely? In other words, what do you think you're going to look like in heaven? You think you're going to be wearing the latest fashions? How's it work? Somebody tell me. Are your clothes raptured when you're raptured? Some of you aren't looking as forward to the rapture now as you were. We don't have any record that clothes are raptured. We don't have any reason to think so. Well, what would it be? It's probably going to be the same situation that I believe occurred with Adam and Eve when they were in the Garden of Eden. They received, we'll receive redeemed bodies. Theirs weren't redeemed bodies. They were just perfect bodies. But nobody's going to be conscious of what somebody else is wearing because of the glory of God upon them. Now, I may have that all wrong. So don't try to build a doctrine on it. But the, the principle is true. The principle has to be true. The Bible talks about the glory of God being on the inside of us. Well, what would that look like if it wasn't covered with sinful flesh? Or what will it look like when our sinful flesh is redeemed? We receive redeemed bodies. It's got to be different. I don't know to what degree, but it's got to be different. So Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they disobeyed God, that sin opened the door to something else. It opened the door to their their surroundings. They became conscious of things that were there all the time, but they weren't aware of, like their own nakedness. Now shame comes upon them. In other words, a sense of condemnation comes upon them because of their sin. Now, folks, if sin was their only issue, condemnation wouldn't be a problem for them. The fact that sin brought condemnation means spiritual death or separation from God has taken hold of them. And that's where I believe the light of God's glory went out on them. That's when they became conscious. Instantly they became conscious that they were naked and they were ashamed. So here where it says, wherefore as by one man sin entered the world. And death, spiritual death, followed it or was the consequence of that sin. Now, what other characteristics do we have of spiritual death? Well, we know spiritual death is separation from God, right? So anything that has to do with anything other than from God is part of spiritual death. For example, we see the curse coming upon the earth. The first thing that Adam was told by God was that the earth would produce thorns and thistles. Well, that's new. Never had been before. He said, the earth will produce for you by the sweat of your brow. So it must have produced for him some other way prior to that. I think it was by words because that's the the example that God gives us when he created the earth. But whether it was or not, there was some other way that the earth was producing for Adam rather than by getting outside and sweating. He was still doing work before then, but it wasn't the same kind of work, at least not in the same manner. We know that the Bible says that, uh, that poverty, therefore, is a result of spiritual death that came upon Adam and all of mankind as a result of his sin. What about sickness? We have no record of sickness anywhere prior to Adam and Eve's fall, right? Well, where did it come from? Acts 10.38 tells us, it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So it tells us Jesus did good and healing is good, the good that he did. And secondly, it tells us that, that sickness is always of the devil. Well, that means sickness is a result of sin and death, Right? So it says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. 
and death by sin. In other words, sin was the vehicle whereby death and all the characteristics of death, poverty, sickness, and so forth, condemnation and, and, uh, and, and such, sin was the vehicle whereby sin, whereby sickness, poverty, and condemnation came into the earth. Well, let me ask you this then. If the problem is sin that opened the door to spiritual death, what's the answer for sin? Folks, there's only one answer for sin, and that's the cross of Jesus. So therefore, since death, including sickness, came by sin, what's the answer for sickness? Is it possible for there to be any answer other than the cross of Jesus? In theological circles, people say yes. In theological circles, people say, argue, and it's a real controversial issue, real up in the air among a lot of circles, in a lot of circles. Did the atoning work of Christ redeem our bodies from sickness? Well, my question is very simple. I mean, common sense will get you there. If sin is the problem, if sin opened the door to death, and the only answer for sin is the cross of Jesus, there isn't any other answer for sin, is there? I mean, good works doesn't do it. Paul had a hard time trying to convince the Jews of that. But he's clear with us in the letters that he wrote to the church. Good works don't do it. It's not being born a Jew rather than a Gentile that'll do it. So what is the only answer for sin? The cross of Jesus. The sacrifice or the shedding of Jesus' blood. Well, then if death, meaning in our case, for our discussion tonight, if sickness is the result of Adam's original sin, then what only, what could possibly be the only Solution or cure for sickness, the cross of Jesus. Are you with me? Now, that may seem simple. I mean, if, if we just started off tonight without going into detail and said, did Jesus redeem us from sickness when he, when he went to the cross? Well, we've all been taught yes. So we'd answer, yeah, sure, it has. But how, how come all the church doesn't accept that? Why is that a controversial issue? You've probably run into people that don't believe in healing, haven't you? You've probably run into people that are very adamant and very passionate about not, run, not believing in healing. It seems to me that the people that don't believe in healing will fight for their right to be sick. I never have understood that, but that's, that's, the, that's, that's at least been my experience. Has it been yours too? I mean, they're the most vocal about it. They're not people that stand up and say, well, we don't know for sure. They'll stand up and say, no, Jesus did not heal our bodies. Healing's not for everybody. Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say about it. If, uh, if, if the cross of Jesus is the only answer, the only remedy for sin, and sickness came by the original sin, then the only remedy that's possible in my thinking for sickness has to be the cross of Jesus. Do we know for a certainty that sickness is identified in Deuteronomy chapter 28 as part of the curse of the law? Is there any question about that? Deuteronomy 28 starts off in the first 14 verses saying all these blessings will come on you and overtake you if you will hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God and keep his commandments and so forth. The last, um, well, what, the last 70 verses or 60 verses in the chapter, something like that, 65 maybe, verses in the chapter is all these curses will come upon you if you will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord. And it identifies sickness very clearly. It speaks of specific sicknesses, 13 of them, I, I believe, are specifically identified. And then it says in verse 61 of Deuteronomy 28, and all the sicknesses that you don't know about, every other sickness that you don't know about are part of the curse and will come on you too. 
So there's no doubt that, that Moses, inspired by the Holy Ghost, understood that sickness was a part of the curse of the law. Well, who can remove the curse but God? Is it possible for you to remove the curse on your own? Who can remove the curse but God? And what's God's method for removing that curse? Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. So notice Paul said, inspired by the Holy Ghost, that the remedy for the curse of the law, which sickness is a part of, clearly, the remedy for the curse of the law is the cross of Jesus. So the remedy for sickness is the cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Now, folks, the reason I want to hammer on this for a little bit, and forgive me if I come down a little bit strong, but I'm, I'm really kind of teaching this from an argumentative standpoint. Because there are so many in the church world, and it's so prevalent for people to say that healing doesn't belong to everybody, or they'll take uh, fallback positions. Well, God can heal, but you never know who he will heal. You never know who healing is for. You never know if healing uh, is yours, or you can't expect it to be yours, or any number of different ways that people explain it. But if that's true, then God's picking the winners and losers, which is contrary to what the Bible says he does. So if that's what he does, we've got some pages to tear out of the Bible. And quite frankly, you're going to get to the point where you might as well throw the whole thing away. So what about that argument? What about the argument that Jesus didn't redeem us from sickness when he redeemed us from sin? Well, I've got this question, and I want to talk to you about this a little bit. Turn back with me to um, Exodus chapter 12. We want to take some verses of Scripture here and look at what the Bible says relative to the physical body along with the spirit of man. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is where God institutes the Passover. This is when Moses is, uh, hasn't yet led the children of Israel out of the wilderness. Or, I'm sorry, not out of the wilderness, but from the bondage of Egypt. And here's the, here's the point that I want to prove to you for, through many scriptures, and we won't have, take the time to, to go through them all. But I want to give you a handful of scriptures tonight that will prove if the Bible is true, where it says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. I'll give you at least three and what, maybe more. We'll just see how long it takes us. And here's the question. If healing is not part of the redemptive work of Jesus, then why is healing associated with the atonement in the Old Testament time after time after time? Because there's no question that the atonement, which is an Old Testament word, not a New Testament word. It's only used one time in the New Testament, and that's not really even the word of the Old Testament. The Greek word that's translated atonement into the English is not the same word that's used in the Hebrew for the Old Testament. Atonement is an Old Testament word which means the covering over or the doing away, temporarily doing away of sin. Redemption means the paying for it once and for all, the removal of it altogether. See, there's a difference between covering something over and removing it. If I've got an ink stain on my jacket, I can put something, I can hold my hand here and cover it, but it's still there. Well, the atonement covered man's sin, but it was still there. But the blood of Jesus redeemed us. It removed it once and for all. See, you may look at yourself as a sinner, but God never sees you as a sinner. God sees you as redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So whether you know it or not, God knows that the sin's been removed. The devil doesn't want you to know that. He wants you to think it's just covered up. He wants you to think that spot, that stain of sin is still with you and will always be with you, and that's what makes you unworthy. Knowing full well that the redemptive work of Jesus, in other words, the fulfillment of the Old Testament type of atonement, Jesus going to the cross, shedding his own blood, removes sin once and for all. 
In other words, the cross of Jesus is the cure for sin, not the covering over. Old Testament is covering it over. New Testament is removing it and doing away with it. So if healing is not in the atonement, as some would say, and that technically that's a, that's a misnomer. If healing is not in the redemptive work of Jesus, that's an accurate and correct way to say it. If healing is not in the redemptive work of Jesus, then why does it say so many times in the Old Testament that healing is associated with the atonement which was fulfilled, the type of which was atonement, which is fulfilled by the reality of Jesus going to the cross? Exodus chapter 12. Here's the Passover. God instructs Moses on telling the people of Israel what to do with the Passover. You know the story. We won't look at it in detail. But you know the story. How that they were supposed to kill the lamb for every household and put the blood over the doorposts. You remember the story? When they put the blood over the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over that house and everybody would be saved. Everybody would be safe. If there was not blood on the doorposts, then the angel of death would kill the firstborn of that house. That's, why, that's how the firstborn of all of Egypt died. Because they did not trust in the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed as a Passover. Now the Bible says very clearly, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible says very clearly that Christ is our Passover which is sacrificed for us. In other words, the Old Testament Passover was a type of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Everybody agree to that? Let me ask you a question. What were they supposed to do with the lamb after they killed it? They're supposed to roast it and eat every bit of it. Leave none, have none left over. If the house wasn't big enough for a lamb, then get two houses together. Because they were supposed to eat all of it. In other words, not leave any of it uneaten. Partake of every bit of the lamb for this one purpose. And that is for the strength, physical strength for their journey. Now, if the Old Testament type of the Passover, which Jesus fulfilled by going to the cross and being raised from the dead. If the Old Testament Christ... The Old Testament type was for the physical strength of their bodies. Why would we not expect a a, a similar or a physical benefit from the fulfillment of that type in Christ? In other words, if it's just about sin, if it's just about the blood of Jesus and it's just about sin, all they would have to do is put the blood over the doorpost. There had to be a reason for the eating of the lamb. God doesn't do things haphazardly and he's not careless. He told them specifically. He didn't just say, now you're going to need strength for your journey, so make sure you eat well. No, he said, eat the lamb and don't leave any of it left over. In other words, as far as God is concerned, as far as the type is concerned, the type of Jesus for the Old Testament, the the partaking and taking part of the whole of the lamb, all that the lamb provided for the household was very important. They had to prepare it in a certain way. They didn't say make, he didn't say make your favorite lamb dish. There was a specific way for it to be prepared. And that specific way of being roasted and certain ways that you had to roast it and, and the instructions that Moses gave the children of Israel, that certain way was a type of Jesus paying the price for mankind in the pit of hell, in the torment of hell. And then they were supposed to eat it and eat every bit of it, not leave any of it undone or uneaten. One thing that that I think that signifies is so much of the church world just wants to partake of a part of the benefits of Jesus on the cross. They want to take advantage of the forgiveness of sins part, but they don't want to take advantage of the healing part. Well, we don't know about that healing. And you know, this is, this one just, this one gets me crispy in a hurry. Where some people say, well, healing is not as important as the saving of the soul. 
Well, doesn't that sound religious? Tell that to somebody sick. And they call us arrogant. They say we're arrogant by trying to order God around through our confession. What arrogance for somebody to say that healing is not important if Jesus paid for it. I'm not sure how it works in heaven, but I hope. I truly hope that I get to stand on the sidelines and watch some people answer for some of the things that they've said here on the earth. And I'm talking preachers. I want to see some people answer for it. I want to see them answer when Jesus says, why did you say this when my word says that? I want to hear it. Now, maybe my heart will be changed by the time I get there and I won't care and and so forth, but I'm kind of hoping for that one. So if that's wrong, then you guys pray for me. Okay. Turn with me to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 30. We didn't even look at the verse of Scripture in Exodus 12, did we? Oh, well, we're out of time. Go ahead and turn to 2 Chronicles. I described it to you. You can find it for yourself. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. This is 765 years later after the Passover is instituted. Um, let's start in, I want to skip around a couple of verses. Second Chronicles chapter 30 verse 1. And Hezekiah, he's the king. Hezekiah sent to all of Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover under the Lord God of Israel. Like I said, 765 years after Exodus 12. Uh, let's skip down to verse, uh, where do we want to go? Well, just skip with me over to verse 20 rather than taking time to read some of the, the, uh, details. Verse 20, it says, and the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah. This is after they had the Passover. The Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Notice people were healed. This is talking about physical healing. This word healed means to mend or cure. It's always used in the Old Testament relative to physical sickness or affliction. Always. Never any other way. Why is it if healing was not a part of the Passover work? And I believe, again, this is just me, but I believe where the Bible says in Psalm 1, uh, what is it, 1, well, Psalm something. You, you may know the verse. Where it says, God led them out with silver and gold. Talking about Israel coming out of Egypt. God led them forth with silver and gold and there was not one people among them. How is it that a couple of million people didn't have any feeble or sick sick people among them? I believe, this is just me, I believe that after God led them out of uh, Egypt, in the first place they get to where the water is bitter, and Moses throws in the, the stick into the water, signifying Jesus and the tree, the cross, being thrown into the waters of mankind. God identifies himself to the people. He establishes a statute and an ordinance. A statute and an ordinance means here's a commandment and a law. And he said, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Well, the King James says healeth, but literally the word means a continuous action, including the past. I believe that God is saying and identifying the first name that he identifies himself to Israel with or by. He says, I'm the Lord that healed you. I believe the healing that took place in the Passover, which now takes place 765 years later in Hezekiah's reign. I believe that's what God's referring to. He says, I'm the one that brought you healing. That's how they could come forth and not one be feeble among them. So here it says he hearkened to Hezekiah. In other words, when they kept the Passover for 765 years, they haven't been, or not the entirety of that time, but for a long time they've been, they haven't kept the Passover, the one that they're supposed to keep every year. Israel stopped doing that because they got away from God. Hezekiah reinstitutes the Passover, 
And God hearkens unto Hezekiah and heals the people. Well, if the Passover, which again the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that Jesus is our, Christ is our Passover, sacrifice for us. If the Old Testament type of the Passover had healing in it, why wouldn't the fulfillment of that type, which is the cross of Jesus, have healing in that too? If not, then we'd have a right to challenge the scripture that says we've got a better covenant established on better promises. Because if our healing, if our covenant doesn't include healing through the Christ, our Passover, who was sacrificed for us on the cross, if our covenant doesn't include healing and the Old Testament covenant did, how's ours better? Well, Pastor Mike, we have the new birth. We're made new creatures. Yeah, that would make it a different covenant. But again, I would challenge if you're sick, is that better? Wouldn't it be just as good under the old covenant to to be able to walk in health and then keep the law and then wait in in Abraham's bosom for Jesus to come and then go to heaven with him? Wouldn't that be better? Because then you get the blessings of heaven and the old covenant blessing of healing. Well, you're just thinking carnally, Pastor Mike. Well, yeah, you know, I do live in this earthly body. I'm very concerned about my earthly body for as long as I've got it. Now, once I don't have it anymore, I won't care about it. But for as long as I've got it, I want it to be healthy. Don't you? Oh, that's just being selfish. Not if Jesus paid for it. Turn with me now over to uh, Leviticus chapter 14. Leviticus chapter 14. Here's God instituting the laws of cleanliness and and even the laws of atonement. It says, let's start in chapter 14 in verse uh, verse 2 to get the, the import of what's being said. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought forth unto the priest. And it goes down and talks about sprinkling him with water and so forth. And it says uh, in verse uh, 13. And the priest shall slay the lamb in the place where he shall kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest, so is the trespass offering. It is most holy. Verse 18, talking about dipping his hand in oil and putting it on the the leper. And the remnant of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall pour upon the head of him that is to be cleansed. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. And the priest shall offer the sin offering, verse 19, and make an atonement for him that is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering. Obviously, this is a shedding of blood, isn't it? And the priest, verse 20, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the meal offering, or the meat offering, excuse me, upon the altar. And the priest shall make an atonement for him and he shall be clean. Verse 21, and if he be poor and cannot get so much, then he shall take one lamb for the trespass offering to be waived to make an atonement for him and one-tenth deal of fine flour mingled with oil for a meat offering and a log of oil. If the atonement under the old covenant is connected with healing, why isn't Jesus the fulfillment of the Old Testament type of atonement not include healing under the new covenant? Do you see the point? Folks, if this was just here in Scripture one time, we'd have a right to question it. It's here dozens of times. Turn with me over to, uh, well, let's look at Leviticus 15 before we get too far away. Wait a minute, forgot a Scripture. 
Verse 31, even, even such as he is able to get the one for the sin offering and the other for a burnt offering along with a meat offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him that is to be cleansed before the Lord. Chapter 15. Here's a, here's a person that doesn't have leprosy, but is a person that has a running sore or an issue out of his flesh, according to verse 2. It says in verse 15, and the priest shall offer them. One for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord for his issue. So the atonement is used as a means of, of bringing about healing in, the, healing in the physical body. Not only for the leper but for the, the person that has an issue. Further on in chapter 15 it tells us what the woman with the issue of blood could have done. Verse 25. And if a woman have an issue of her blood many days or out of time of her separation. Blah, blah, blah. Verse 30. And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering. That sounded bad, blah, blah, blah. I didn't mean that to be disrespectful. I just didn't want to take the time to read everything. Skip down to verse 30. And the priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her before the Lord for the issue of her uncleanness. Over and over and over again. Now, these are the laws of of, uh, uh, the Levitical laws. These are the priestly laws. This is what God is telling the priest. Here's what you do when somebody that's, that's sick with one of these dreaded diseases, uncurable diseases, when they come to you, here's how you bring them back to health. In other words, what's the point in making an atonement? What's the point in making an atonement? They're operating under the day of atonement or under the atonement that, that they're making, the priests are making for Israel every year anyway. This is a different atonement. What for? Well, why is it the, the, the way that we can identify what the atonement is for is to find out who's the one that's, being, that's having the atonement made for? Again and again and again, it's people with uncurable diseases. Well, why would atonement be a part of the Old Testament blessing when Jesus, the fulfillment of the Old Testament type, went to the cross to make a sacrifice for us once and for all. Look with me over to um, look with me to First Corinthians chapter eleven. For the sake of time, let's skip through some of these and get to the, some New Testament scriptures. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Notice what Paul said. Talking about the Lord's Supper. Now you know that the Lord's Supper is the Passover, right? It's the way that the church operates according to the Passover. The Jews still partake of the the Passover meal and the sacraments and and so forth. The church just breaks it down to bread and wine or bread and juice depending on the situations and so forth. Elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. So Paul said, we'll start reading in verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Notice he said, This is his body. This is my body which is broken for you. The body being broken for them, for us, has significance as far as God is concerned. It's kind of like the Passover lamb. If the blood is the only thing, why'd they have to eat the lamb? There was a physical benefit. Jesus said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. What are we supposed to remember about Jesus? What a good looking guy he was? What pretty hair he had? What are we supposed to remember about Jesus? He's talking about his sacrifice. Right? He's talking about his sacrifice. Remember that my body was sacrificed for you. Verse 25, after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
Paul said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. In other words, this is a church age ordinance. When he comes, things change. But as long as we're here on the earth, as long as the church, the body of Christ is here on the earth, we're supposed to remember what Jesus died for. That his body and his blood, the New Testament uh, cup of his blood, were both offered as a sacrifice. Now, if both body and blood were offered, why is the blood the only thing that's referred to by most of the church? Would we be accurate in having the Lord's Supper in any Christian church service and not having bread? Nobody even, they would even think of that, folks. I mean, you mess up somebody's communion ritual, you're going to have a fight on your hands. But if the blood is the only thing that anybody partakes of, why have the bread? Now, keep that in mind. I'm not asking or trying to be facetious. I'm not making fun of anybody. Paul addresses something very similar. Paul said, verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, He doesn't say unworthy. The blood of Jesus makes you worthy. He's talking about your attitude about the Lord's Supper. Did you know that was important? Not just partaking of the bread and the cup, but your attitude about it when you do is a very serious thing as far as the Holy Ghost is concerned. Paul's not talking about his own ideas. He's speaking by the Holy Ghost. He said, Wherefore, whosoever eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily or in an unworthy manner with an unworthy attitude, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now remember, he just said in the previous verse that as often as we eat and drink, eat the body and eat the bread and drink the cup, we're showing the Lord's death till he comes. So he's saying the unworthy attitude has something to do with the wrong attitude or wrong thinking, wrong understanding about the death of Jesus. Well, is that important, Pastor Mike? Yeah. Notice how important it is. He said, but let a man examine himself, verse 28, and let him also eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, with this unworthy attitude, with this wrong understanding of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation. This is not going to hell damnation. This is condemnation here on the earth. Eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Doesn't say a word about the blood. What's the problem? Well, apparently the problem was the same in Paul's day as it is in our day. Nobody rejects, no Christian rejects the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that brings us salvation. But what about the body? Notice he says, not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, a wrong attitude, the unworthy manner, unworthy attitude he's talking about in 999 cases out of 1,000 or even more is going to be a wrong attitude toward the body, the sacrifice of the Lord's body that was broken for you, not the blood. The issue has always been with the body. Are you with me? It's there, isn't it? Am I reading anything into this? Maybe you've never seen it in this way before, but it's been there all the time. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, again, that's not unworthy 
as an individual. It's an unworthy attitude, unworthy as far as God is concerned, unworthy of the sacrifice of Jesus, really. Unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, literally condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Maybe a better word of this, for this word damnation is the word judgment. And there is a judgment that comes. And Paul's going to tell what that judgment is. Not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30. For this cause. What cause? Wrong attitude toward the Lord's body. Not discerning the Lord's body. Not recognizing what it was broken for you for. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Other translations say many died prematurely. This stuff must be pretty serious to God. Jesus said, gave him the bread and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. If you don't recognize that the body was broken for your physical well-being. The Bible says, by the stripes of Jesus, we were healed. Now, why is that? Let, let, let me back up and kind of take a little side journey here and then we'll get back on the main line. Why is that? Why is the, the issue so important? Because when Jesus took the beating upon himself in Pilate's court, and it was a very severe thing. Many people die from these beatings themselves before they ever got to the real form of execution. And the Roman soldiers know, that, I mean, they hated the Jews with a passion. And now here's somebody that's, that's uh, being claimed. Jesus didn't claim it himself. But there are those that are saying that Jesus said that he was the king of the Jews. Man, they've got an opportunity. These Roman soldiers have an opportunity to take out every bit of anger they've ever had against the Jews on this one guy. And they did. In fact, the Bible says, we, we say it the way the King James says, by his stripes we were healed. That's really a, a wrong translation. The word is not stripe, it's bruise. Dr. Isaac Lesser, who was a, a, a Greek and Hebrew scholar, uh, Hebrew scholar, I should say, went through the, the, um, uh, the breakdown of the words in, in some of the books that he wrote. One of the book of, books of his that Brother Hagen and Roy Hicks reprinted after many years is Bodily Healing in the Atonement. And Dr. Lesser goes to, the, uh, goes to great pains to explain that if there had been one, uh, I think it's one thirty-seconds of an inch between any two marks on his back, then they used the wrong word. In fact, it literally means that Jesus' back was, a, was one mass. It looked like one wound where not one mark could be distinguished from another in order for this word to be used. And literally, it's not the word stripe. It's the word bruise. In other words, talking about one mass of wounded flesh. Why did Jesus take that beating on himself? Well, technically, he took it upon himself so that blood could be shed. And that's why the body is as important as the blood. Because blood was shed when Jesus took the beating upon his back. Now, from Jesus' standpoint, why did he accept the, ble- the, the beating? I mean, he's going to shed blood on the cross. Why, why didn't that just do the work? The Bible says specifically that he took the beating because with his bruise, by his bruise, you were healed. In other words, it would have been like the Passover being halfway sacrificed, the blood being put on the doorpost, but the, bread, the, the lamb itself not being available for physical sustenance and strength. Now, if we look at it from God's standpoint, forget church doctrine and so forth. If we look at it from God's standpoint, if this is true, and we can prove it by Scripture, if this is true, then for God to sit in heaven and see his children pick and choose 
What part of the sacrifice of Jesus they want to accept and reject the rest? That brings judgment. That's an unworthy attitude. That attitude is a person condemning themselves. We look at it as judgment from God, but it's not. It's refusing to accept a part of the work of Jesus. The part of the work of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, just as real as the shedding of his blood on the cross, the shedding of his blood for the physical well-being of the body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Then Paul says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Judge yourselves how? Well, the judgment he's talking about is not judging yourself about whether or not you told a lie last week or whether or not you stole a candy bar from the store, although those things are wrong. He's talking about judging yourself on the right attitude toward the Lord's death. He said if we judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged. In other words, we wouldn't be weak and sickly. And people wouldn't die prematurely. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened. Literally, chastened means disciplined or instructed of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Notice there's a difference between judgment and condemnation. Now, this is damnation going to hell. This word condemned with the world is talking about people going to hell. Now, folks, I'd hate to make the choice, but you can see as well as I do that being weak and sickly and even dying prematurely is a whole lot better than going to hell. I don't want either one. And there's a very easy way to to avoid all of it, and that is by judging yourself as far as your attitude toward Jesus and his death. But that's what Paul says in the New Testament ordinance of the Passover. In other words, Paul is saying you need to make sure you have the right attitude toward both the blood of Jesus, everybody does that, but the body of Jesus because it can have a physical effect on you. If you have the wrong attitude, you can be weak and sickly and die prematurely. Well, what do you think the right attitude will do then? Keep you from being weak and sickly and and cause you to live out the fullness of your days here on the earth. In other words, you can receive healing through the Lord's Supper in the New Testament just like Hezekiah and the people of Israel received healing through the Passover in the Old Testament. I believe Israel did in Exodus chapter 12 and 13 too, but we can certainly prove it by Second Chronicles 30 verse 20. Now turn with me over to Mark chapter 2. Let me close this up. Mark chapter 2. This is telling about Jesus preaching in a certain house. Uh, Really, the Bible's pretty clear, not crystal clear, but pretty clear that this is Jesus' house. Verse 1, Mark chapter 2, And again, after he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. Um, Revised Standard Version says he was at home, along with some other versions as well. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much about the door, and as he preached the word, and he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four, carried by four people. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, you'd think that he came for healing, wouldn't you? Well, then why does Jesus address sins? Remember where we started in Romans chapter 5? Verse 12, it says, wherefore, as by one man 
sin entered the world and death by sin. In other words, Jesus knows that if you're going to deal with sickness once and for all, you've got to deal with the original sin. So what does he do? He talks about the source or the entryway for physical death, sickness into the earth and says, son, man, your sins are for you. Now that stirs up the religious people. There were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Verse 7, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? They considered it blasphemy to forgive sins on the earth. Why? Because nobody can do that but God. They go on to say that in their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God only? Folks, that's a great question. Who can forgive sins except God? God's the only one that can can forgive man's original sin. He's the only one that can forgive the sin that opened the door to, to spiritual death. Him and him alone. Now, they didn't understand that Jesus is working on behalf of God because he's the son of God. But they're exactly right. Who can forgive sins but God only? Jesus immediately perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. And he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? Now, they're right in what they're saying. Wrong about the blasphemy part, but right about the forgiveness part. And Jesus said, why are you reasoning these things in your heart? In other words, Jesus is saying, why don't you recognize who I am? If you recognize that I was the Messiah, the sacrifice for mankind, you would understand that I can certainly forgive sins. That's what they're rejecting. Because anybody that hasn't rejected him as the Messiah is just simply going to say, what's he going to do now? But they're saying, wait a minute, he's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Yes. Yes on the God forgiving part. No on the blasphemy part. Since he is God, it's not blasphemy. So Jesus said, why reason you these things in your your hearts? Which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy? Verse 9. Notice Jesus' reasoning. The same cure for sin is the cure for sickness. What's the difference in how you say it? Which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy? Thy sins be forgiven thee or to say arise, take up your bed and walk? The answer is very simple, folks. The cross of Jesus is the only answer for either one. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. Now remember what they know. They know that nobody can forgive sins but God only. So Jesus says that you may know that I do have power on the earth to forgive sins. In other words, I'm going to prove to you who I am. Did it? Yeah, it was proof, but they wouldn't accept it. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, and he take up your bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed. Didn't say they all believed. But they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Never saw anything like this. Did it make them believe? Did it make them accept that he was God? No. Didn't. But Jesus proved it. Now, folks, here's the issue. Very simply, here's the issue. If the only answer for sin is the cross of Jesus and sickness entered the world because of Adam's sin, then the only answer for sickness is the cross of Jesus. Now, what does God have to do to forgive a man's sin if he wants to get born again? Does Jesus have to take one extra step? 
Does God have to do something special from heaven? Does God have to send salvation to heaven, from heaven down to the earth to cause a man to believe and receive? No, it's already done. Everybody accepts that. Everybody accepts that Jesus went to the cross. He died, shed his blood, was raised again from the dead. And all you have to do is accept him as Lord and Savior. Well, then what makes healing any different? Why are people looking for God to do something for them to be healed? It's the same cross of Jesus that did the work. The cross of Jesus is completed. He went to the cross. He died. He rose again. He shed his blood. And now he's been raised again to the the right hand of God the Father. He's not going to do anything more about your sin or your sickness. Because it's not necessary for something else to be done. It's a completed work. So what are we to do? Turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Is this making any sense to anybody? I'm sure I haven't told you anything you haven't already known. But it's my, not my job to teach you something new. James chapter 5 verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them, the elders, pray over him, the sick. Anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith might save the sick if things are just done right. Here's the ordinance. You remember in the ordinance of the Old Testament when God, when they got to the, the place where the water was bitter and God said to, to Moses, throw the stick into the water? That's a signi- that signifies there's a type of Jesus being thrown into the waters of mankind that made the waters clean and pure, sweet, as the King James says. And then God says, I set before you this day a statute and an ordinance. If you keep my commandments and do what is right in my sight, I will take sickness away from the midst of you, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Literally, I am Jehovah Rapha. Jehovah Rapha. Interestingly, Dr. Schofield, in his footnotes about the redemptive work of Jesus and the redemptive names of God in in, uh, pages 6 and 7 of his study Bible, Dr. Schofield said, that the seven redemptive names that God identifies himself to Israel, where he calls himself Jehovah something else, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah uh, Shalom, whatever the, the case may be. Seven different names. He said these seven redemptive names of God represent what man lost in the fall and what God identifies himself to be redeeming to mankind And, of course, we know that redemption was fulfilled in Jesus. Dr. Schofield is telling us that man lost healing and God identifies himself as the the redeemer of healing. So this is the New Testament ordinance for the church. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. It doesn't leave any wiggle room. It says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Why? Because the work of Jesus is finished. Because the cross of Jesus paid the price for sin, which was the entrance to death, meaning sickness, in in our discussion tonight. Sin and sickness have already been paid for. The same blood of Jesus did it. Now, if the blood of Jesus doesn't do it for you, I can't help you. And unfortunately, I don't mean that just to be a joke. Unfortunately, the blood of Jesus doesn't do it for everybody when it comes to healing of the physical body. They're looking for God to take some extra step. They're looking for some special power. They're looking for some anointing. Do you get saved that way? 
Did you get saved coming to the front of a church saying, oh, I'm looking for the power? No, you're just accepting what the Word said. Confess Jesus as your Lord. Ask Him into your heart. You'll be saved. Nobody was looking for power. Nobody was looking for some special anointing. Nobody was looking for something extra. Nobody was looking for God to do anything except keep His Word. And people got saved. You got saved. I got saved. That's how we got saved. Just looking for God to do the work because Jesus has already gone to the cross. We just heard it preached. Jesus went to the cross. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. Now, whoever confesses him as Lord and Savior and accepts the work that he did, already did, on the cross, can receive that and become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And we did and we were. What do we think is different for healing? Same cross, same blood, same finished work. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Notice this. And the Lord shall raise him up. Verse 15, the last part of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice he's saying the same prayer of faith that forgives sins is the prayer of faith that heals the sick. Same work. Sickness is not always associated with sin, but sometimes it is. You remember Jesus told the guy that he, um, uh, in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda, rise, take up your bed and walk. He saw him later and he said, go and sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. In his case, sin had something to do with his condition. Sometimes it does. Not always, but sometimes it does. So in case it does, the same prayer of faith that forgives sin heals the physical body. Now, can I ask you a question? I want you to think about yourself, and please don't answer this out loud. I'm not trying to get into your business. But when you confess your sins before the Father, when you ask God to forgive you when you've done something wrong, do you always feel forgiven? I don't. I'll speak for myself here. I don't. There are things that I do that I kick myself about for the next few days. But eventually, I'll come to a place where I forget about it or I get past it or whatever, But for those several days while I'm still kicking myself, and I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying you ought to follow my example. You shouldn't. But for those few days while I'm kicking myself, I'm just as forgiven as when I feel better later on. Aren't I? Aren't we? Isn't that how it works? Do I tell myself when I'm kicking over the next few days, when I'm kicking myself, do I say I'm not worthy of the blood of Jesus? I'm not a child of God anymore. I'm not righteous. No, I know better. I know better and I say, thank you, Father, that I am righteous no matter how stupid I was. Or something to that effect. So I don't let the feelings of not being forgiven or not feeling righteous, I don't let those feelings dissuade me from the truth, the fact that I was healed, that I was forgiven once and for all, by Jesus' work on the cross, and all I have to do when I miss it is ask him to forgive me and accept it. But it doesn't become true when I feel better. It becomes true when I pray and confess my sins. Why do we think it's different where healing is concerned? When you pray the prayer of faith or have the church pray the prayer of faith over you, there's no guarantee you're going to feel better. Does that matter? It doesn't where forgiveness is concerned. Why should it where healing is concerned? But immediately, 
People will start feeling themselves. Well, I don't feel any better. I guess it didn't work. Well, try that next time you mess up and ask God to forgive you. You'll really be in a mess. And the people that do that go through life not knowing if they're saved. Because they never accept once and for all, I have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Even when I mess up, I'm still righteous in God's eyes. That may be hard for me to understand, but that's the way it is. Those are the people that get past it and grow beyond it. If there's any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Notice it's not the oil that saves the sick. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. So people get upset. Well, you didn't anoint me with oil. Well, it's not the oil that saves you. It's not the oil that heals you. It's the prayer of faith that heals you. What's the prayer of faith do? The prayer of faith says it's mine, I have it now. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross, shed his blood, his body and his spirit were broken for you. And by his stripes you were healed. The reason that, that the Holy Ghost did not inspire James to leave any wiggle room in this whatsoever is that it's just as finished work for the body as it is for the spirit because it's the same blood. So we could say with Jesus, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Arise, take up your bed and walk. Same work. Same result. Same blood of Jesus. Are you out there? Okay. 